following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. from the English Standard Version, John 10, beginning at verse 11. Listen to God's Word. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of God. Here is an imaginary help-wanted advertisement. If you are looking for employment, listen up. See how this sounds to you, how eager you might be to apply for this. Wanted. Manager for thousands of wayward and helpless sheep. Experience required in veterinary medicine and general animal husbandry. Must supply your own weapon to combat bandits and wolves. You'll be on duty all waking hours, seven days per week, and sleep out of doors in all weather. Low wages, no vacation time or sick days allowed, no health insurance provided. See President Obama. Doesn't that sound enticing? What a great job. Who would want it? The job of a biblical shepherd. Well, last Sunday we began in John chapter 10 with this image held up for us by Christ himself of him being a shepherd. He started out telling us that he was the true shepherd as opposed to false ones. That was the leaders of Israel who were not acting as pastors to their people. 
And then he switched the imagery a bit in verse 7 and talked about being the doorway by which the sheep enter the fold of God, the kingdom of God. And now in verse 11, you might say, he comes to the heart of this matter, this famous chapter. We call it the Good Shepherd chapter. And he really states the thesis in verse 11, I am the good shepherd, the best one you could expect. And he gives this important characteristic, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now, we know that the Bible from early days, despite the difficulties and hardships and kind of grinding uh, lack of attraction of the job of a shepherd, nevertheless, it was a job that many people held and people who became very prominent held the job. And it seems the Bible implies on many occasions that by learning the role of a shepherd, they learned to be leaders. You could think of some very prominent Old Testament people who were shepherds. Abel, the very first human child born in the world, born to Adam and Eve, the one who was killed by Cain, was a keeper of sheep. And then came Jacob, the father of Israel, and his son, Joseph, And then generations later, Moses. And then future King David. All of these people had, and many more, had experience caring for flocks. And the implication was that shepherd skills prepared them to deal with people who are also cantankerous and wayward and weak. When Jesus announced this theme, I am the good shepherd, this is a saying that we have to add to a series of things in John that we call the I am sayings of Jesus. We've heard several of them already. In chapter 6, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Just before this, a few verses in chapter 10, I am the door of the sheep, and now I am the shepherd, the good one. That's the literal reading of the Greek. These different descriptions sort of pile up one upon the other, and they're, they're showing us different facets of the greatness and the wonder of who Jesus Christ is and of the excellencies of his character. You could say here that by calling himself the good shepherd, if we wanted to put it to the highest degree, he's calling himself the supreme shepherd. That's a right understanding of what he says here. He's actually saying, it's not a modest statement, he's saying, I am the perfect shepherd, I am the shepherd in a class by myself, and the proof of that is my giving my life for the flock of God. I want to show you several uh, aspects or facets of this subject this morning as Jesus is displayed here as the supreme shepherd. Shepherd. Here's three things I'd hope to draw from this text. First, we see that because he bought his human flock at great cost, this supreme shepherd knows his flock and knows them very intimately. Secondly, beside the small portion of the flock of Christ that you and I regularly see, our supreme shepherd says he owns many more that we do not see. And then the climaxing point that Christ, the supreme shepherd, 
willingly gave his life for us, for his flock. First of all, and based mostly on 12 through 15, we have this point. Because Christ bought his flock, Jesus the shepherd knows that flock and knows it intimately and therefore is ready to care for us based on that wonderful knowledge. And once again, he contrasts himself with people who do the job poorly or negatively. Those hired hands, he calls them. Maybe there was a a temp agency called Rent-A-Shepherd, I don't know, where people uh, brought in a shepherd for a day or two if they didn't have their their regular one. But if you bring in somebody like that, what are they interested in? A paycheck. And Jesus says, look, if they are not owners, if they are not invested in those they care for, then the paycheck's going to be all they're really after. And any danger or great difficulty that might come along, those people are not going to care for the flock. They're going to run off to save their own skin. But since Jesus is Lord and owner and has bought his people. The point here is he has an in-depth level of concern, and that concern leads to great knowledge of the flock, their needs, their weaknesses, and what it takes to care for them. He said, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. When you think about this kind of comprehensive knowledge, I remember years ago when a woman came by my office. She had never been there before, and actually somebody was just in my office yesterday for the first time. I was surprised they'd never been there, a member of the church. But this was a person from outside, and she came in my office and saw several thousand books on the shelves all around the walls, and she, she made a statement, said, well, something like this, I'm sure that you cannot possibly find a given individual book title among all of these books. And I thought to myself, you're wrong. (laughs) Tell me a book if the title's here and I can probably point within two inches on the shelf where it ought to be unless somebody has moved it or borrowed it. This is a little hint to those of you that may have books of mine in your possession. Unless the book's somewhere else, I can tell you where it should be. Why? Not because I have super intelligence, but because I bought those books. They're my books. And I organize those books. And there's a scheme to it all. And they're in topical arrangement. And therefore, I know because I use these books. They're my tools. They're my friends. I can find the book out of thousands. Very different illustration, but just about the same point is I think of my grandfather, who more than 50 years ago was a small-time dairy farmer up in western New York. And, you know, his farm was not large at all. It was a one-man operation. He had about 20 Holstein cows that he milked every day, morning and evening. And I would come and visit the farm from time to time and interact a little bit with the cows. And, you know, to me, let's face it, cows pretty much look alike. They're all black and white. The patches may be a little bit different. The personalities may be a little different. But I wasn't around them enough to become any kind of an expert in bovine identification. But let me tell you, my grandfather knew those cows. 
to him they were named. You know, Patsy, Bell, Clover, I don't, I only remember a few of the names, but each one had a name. Grandpa knew how much milk, how many gallons of milk that cow gave. He knew when that cow had last had a calf. He could basically tell you the routine of what illnesses they might have had or when the vet last had to visit that cow. Why did he know all that? Because he owned the herd. And he interacted with them every single day. And, and if anyone knew anything about that herd, my grandfather knew it because his livelihood depended on knowledge and care of those animals. Of course he knew them and knew them well. Well, maybe my illustrations aren't the greatest because I'm not suggesting that you or I are the same as library books or cows, either one. But I am suggesting that Jesus is saying here that it is his ownership of the flock of God that gives him a tremendous, comprehensive, profound, deep, detailed knowledge of each and every one of God's people. And this is a wonderful point for us to be reminded of. Don't we all want in our lives for someone trustworthy to know us and to know us well? I mean, isn't that the ideal we're looking for in a spouse, a husband, a wife? a friend, that another person would really know us and and knowing us would accept us and care for us and, and tolerate our weaknesses and celebrate our strengths and so on. That's a fundamental human desire. Well, we're seeing here that Christ is saying when he is Savior and Lord of the flock of God, he knows his flock, not because we are books or cows, but because we are souls known by him from all eternity and marked by him as his elect people to be dealt with in time and space history, drawn to him by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, bound to him as we would grow and flourish in the knowledge of Christ our Lord. This Lord who owns us understands us. And he looks tenderly on us. And he forgives us things that maybe sometimes even our best friend or our spouse doesn't so easily forgive. He has tremendous compassion. Knowing not just our actions, but knowing our thoughts, knowing our motives, everything about us. And I want you to notice a tremendous thing that's in this passage in verse 15. Jesus says this knowledge that he has of his redeemed people actually compares to and and to some extent derives from the knowledge and fellowship that God the Father and God the Son share with each other. Do you see that there? He says, the Father knows me and I know the Father. And that is likened to the knowledge that he has for us. This is tremendous. We're saying that our Savior's knowledge of us is not only supreme, it's not only at a level far above what any human being could have of us, it's actually divine knowledge because it actually derives from that divine fellowship of God the Father and the Son. And therefore, you know, when we say that Christ can supremely sympathize with us in our weakness, Hebrews 4.15 says that. He sympathizes Don't you dare compare that to some smirking politician who says, I feel your pain, folks. He doesn't feel your pain. He wants your vote. 
When Jesus Christ says, I sympathize with your weakness, he's saying that because he experienced in his human body and mind and spirit the weakness that you have. And and Hebrews also tells us in that same place, Hebrews 4, that he was tempted in every point as we are and yet without sin. Supreme Lordship bestows on Jesus Christ a perfect knowledge of those he owns as his children. His insight to us is more penetrating. You probably don't believe this, but I think we are compelled to believe this. His insight to us is more deeply penetrating than your own self-awareness is. You think, I know me better than anybody does. Well, Any pastor will tell you it's amazing how people don't know themselves. They live on the basis of all kinds of myths and illusions and and well-constructed untruths about themselves. But our Lord, our Savior, our Supreme Shepherd knows us beneath the surface better than we know ourselves. That's a wonderful thing to declare about Him. He knows where we are weakest in temptation. He knows where we are strongest in faith. He knows what our gifts are, what our failings are. He knows that the fourth time since last Tuesday, we've wandered off in some foolish direction, and He still loves us, and He's still our Lord. What can possibly be compared to such intimate, deep, gracious, merciful understanding? as our great shepherd has for his believing children, men and women alike. Because he bought his flock, Jesus the shepherd knows us intimately. Secondly, verse 16 is an isolated verse unto itself here, and it has a brief point, but it's an important one that our Lord spoke in the midst of this. Here he tells us another thing. He says, besides the small portion of the flock of God that you and I can regularly view, the supreme shepherd owns many others. Now remember who he was speaking to. That's where you'll get the meaning of this from. He was speaking to Israelites in Jerusalem, those who were beginning to believe in him, who didn't yet see the cross or resurrection, but were starting to have faith that trusted these things. And he said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. What did he mean? It's not a big mystery at all. He meant every Gentile believer, every non-Israelite who would have saving faith in him. And unless you happen to be born of Hebrew parentage, that means you. It means me. And notice when Jesus promises that he has a great flock among non-Israelite Gentiles, he's not saying that he merely hoped that someday there might be Gentiles who would believe in him. And he's not saying uh, that he predicted that somehow, some way, Gentiles would be saved. No, what he's saying is much more positive. He's saying, I have this flock present tense. I possess this larger flock that you can't see and you don't even know about. I have every Christian disciple who will be mine, including those not yet come to him in faith 
and, and belief in the 21st century. They are known to the Lord, known to the one who bought them. And he's already claiming as his own all these people, past, present, and future, whose names are written in what the book of Revelation calls the Lamb's book of life. You see an interesting indicator of this uh, in one part of the New Testament, Acts. Acts chapter 18. 18.10 of Acts, Paul is ministering in Corinth, and there in Corinth, as he preaches the gospel, he was facing significant opposition. He was trying to do it to the Jewish people there in the synagogue, and they were really hostile. They were trying to throw him out, get rid of him, and, and Paul was very discouraged, but he had a dream. And it says there in Acts 18 that in the dream, the Spirit of Christ assured Paul something like this, do not be afraid, Paul, go on speaking, for I have many people or many in this city who are my people. What was the Spirit of Christ telling Paul, the missionary, at that moment? He was getting assurance that there were Christian converts awaiting him in this tough, rocky difficult oppositional field where he was working. Souls already marked out by God's election and therefore sure to be harvested. The harvest of of people for Christ was guaranteed. That's a great thing, I'll tell you, that keeps missionaries and pastors and all kinds of Christian workers going. God has his people. And the message of the gospel calls to those people and he will have them by often very surprising means. He will be, there will be one flock under one shepherd, we read here. Not plan A for the Jews and plan B for the Gentiles. That's not it at all. You know, we didn't say the Apostles' Creed today, but you know when we do say it, we speak of one holy Catholic small c church. If anything ever gets asked about the Apostles' Creed, it's usually, what's this Catholic stuff? I'm not a Catholic. Oh, yes, you are. Small c simply means universal. One holy, universal, worldwide church of Jesus Christ. That is what we declare in faith. And that's telling us a great thing, a great prospect for the future, that one day we're going to see an amazing sight in the kingdom of heaven. We have not seen a representative version of the kingdom of heaven. I promise you, you have not. Because your view of the kingdom of heaven has not included masses of Nigerians, masses of Austrians, of Swedes, of Turks, of Chinese, of Burmese, of Brazilians. You think that everybody's a Pennsylvanian. I'm sorry. That's only a little tiny wedge of the flock of God. And Jesus is tantalizing us here and saying, I have this vast flock that's visible to my eyes, even though you cannot see it yet, but we will. But the third point today that I would make is really the climax of the passage, because Jesus first states his thesis in verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Then he makes these other statements that I've looked at with you in the first two points. But he comes back then to this important, crucial idea of the death 
of the shepherd in verses 17 and 18. Look what he says. The Father loves me because I lay down my life in order that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Don't miss this point. Christ, the supreme shepherd, laid down his life for you and me if you're a member of the flock of God. You know how in our society we naturally and and very correctly pay great honor to anyone who dies doing their public duty as, uh, let's say, a, a policeman responding to an emergency where bullets are flying or a fireman going into a burning building that falls on them and kills them or any soldier or sailor or Marine or Air Force personnel in time of war who die. We honor these people. We honor them highly. I I really like, by the way, the practice of the evening news lately, at least the channel I watch. Every time a Medal of Honor winner dies, they make a note of it. They take a a minute and a half or more and talk about that person who, who held the Congressional Medal of Honor who's just died. That's a great thing to see. We should, we must honor those who give their mortal lives while defending the public good, and we should call them heroes. But you need to know that there's a distinction, important as they are, there's a distinction between them and Jesus. Because not one of those public service heroes or war dead from military service actually and fully willed their own death. Yes, they embraced a vocation that had danger in it, and they knew as they put on the uniform or put on their equipment any given day that this could be a day when great danger would come their way. But none of them, I'll guarantee you, was saying today, my fondest wish today that in doing my duty would be that a burning skyscraper would fall on me and crush me to death. Of course not. They want to do their duty, and willingly so, But, of course, they want to live at the end of the day and return to their families. Despite their bravery, it's right to call them victims because death overtakes them despite their desire to avoid it. Do you see how different the death of Jesus is from the most highly honored Congressional Medal of Honor winner who is able to stand alive and and receive his medal from the president. The death of Jesus was a willing death. This passage emphasizes it so strongly. I give it freely. It's in my power to do that, to give it up and to take it back. Jesus did not merely die while performing his work. To die was his work. And in that sense, he's absolutely unique. He's the victim who volunteered. Matthew 26, 53 has a unique place where he told people that, who were trying to stop his arrest. He said, don't you think I could call down legions of angels to prevent the cross? But then he said, how would the Scriptures be fulfilled? He had to die to fulfill the Scriptures. And he proceeded to that death in a completely willing way. But besides being a willing death, this passage correctly emphasizes another thing and tells us it was a vicarious death. Young people, there's a word you should learn, vicarious. 
It means to do something in the place of others, to the direct benefit of others. I once knew of a set of identical twins. They were not members of this church, I will, I will say, just in case they, someone's looking around at any identical twins in this church. But these two girls were so identical that everybody had a hard time. And one really struggled in a particular subject in school. And so on a final exam, her sister, who didn't struggle in that subject, took the exam. And nobody knew about it for a long time. That sister was vicariously taking the exam for her twin. There's a great deal of stress that we believe belongs in this passage on the little tiny preposition word F-O-R. Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. It means on behalf of, in the place of. Romans 5, 6 has a classic statement. While we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died, F-O-R, for us. The shepherd died in our place. That's the great point that this passage is making. He didn't just care for the flock with with exquisite knowledge and tenderness. He didn't just own a bigger flock than you and I realized. He did something that nobody else ever would think of doing for their flock. He willingly and in our place let the stroke of judgment, the stroke of sin and hell, the wrath of God for sin fall upon himself so it would not be able to fall again on his flock. Wonderfully, our text concludes in verse 17, telling us that the Father's love and approval for his Son is exhibited here. For this reason, the Father loves me. Now, you could misunderstand that. It's as if the Father was saying, well, I'll, I'll withhold judgment and see whether I love Jesus or not if, he's, you know, if he goes to the cross. No, we know, of course, the Father always loved the Son. But he's saying, here in this accomplishment of the cross is the greatest exhibition of why the Father loves the Son, because the Son completes the intention and the internal plan of the Father to die as the sin bearer, and therefore the Father's love is poured out on his Son at the cross. Someone said, we can say this, that it was not merely iron nails that held Jesus on the cross. Yes, there were nails, but they did not hold him there. The bonds that held him there were the bonds of divine love for his Father and for every one of his people from eternity past to history not yet lived out, for whom he was dying and in whose place he stood. The great thing Jesus, the supreme shepherd, did was to die for the people under his guardianship. Later in this book, John 15, verse 13, Jesus said, greater love has no man than this that he would give his life for his friends. The Son of God was calling us his friends, not his helpless, stupid, sinful, wandering objects like dumb animals. His friends were the ones he died for. 
And so, folks, let me tell you, any version of so-called Christianity that, that takes away the emphasis on the need of the gory, awful death of Christ on the cross in the place of ruined sinners, if, if you hear a message that somehow it doesn't have that in it or de-emphasizes the cross, that is not the Christianity of Jesus, nor the Christianity of an apostle like Paul who said he was determined to speak no other message than Jesus Christ and him crucified. And now look as the matter ends here in John 10, 19 to 21. How does it end that day? Once more, we're getting used to this if you've been following the dialogue with these people in Jerusalem. Once again, it says, came a division among the Jews because of these words. Some hearers believed in him, and others took an absolutely radical reaction. Look at what they said. He has a demon. He's insane. And I would tell you that that's the kind of division that the cross still creates today. It's just that radical. Either Jesus Christ is the divine Son giving up his life on behalf of those he loved from all eternity, or he's some kind of insane idiot. He either has a demon or he's divine. Those are the alternatives. They were the alternatives in the first century, and they're the alternatives in the 21st century. The whole world is divided between those who reject Christ's gospel of the cross as madness and those who accept it as the aroma of eternal life. Where do you stand? You can't stand in the middle of that divide. That's like a big chasm. You'll just fall into it. You've got to stand on one side or the other. And I would urge you with the rest of the flock of God to stand with those who bow before this supreme shepherd who came to bring you his merciful, all-knowing care over your life today, knowing you, providing for you, guiding you, standing by you, encouraging you, answering prayer. He's the greatest shepherd you can have. And in eternity, he and no other will be your Lord and your King in whom you will forever rejoice. Our Father, I pray for your flock. And I realize that I don't have a clue how wonderful that flock is. The North Korean folks who follow you under great duress and persecution. The folks in Syria and Iraq who are running today to get out of the way of the powers of the Antichrist. The folks in other lands where family persecution, where fathers throw daughters out of the house for calling Jesus Lord. And one day, those folks are going to join me, and I'll feel like the smallest of the small for having such an easy way to know Christ. Father, hold your flock together. Hold on to that hurting one here today who feels broken and lost and is pretty sure that nobody cares. Show that one the tenderness, the knowledge, the mercy, and the deep love 
of the true shepherd, Jesus Christ. Amen.